Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tuso. And I'm Ann Friedman. Hey, Ann Friedman. What's up today? What's up this week? Hello, hello. I guess it's technically back-to-school season for many of us. It's after Labor Day. So, like, even if you are not currently in school, I think it's sort of intellectually back-to-school season. And in that spirit, I have a delightfully nerdy conversation for you today. Um... I called up my friend, Dr. Stacy Wood, who is the research director for UCLA's Center for Critical Internet Inquiry, which is a big mouthful, but I think it's safe to say that these people are doing some of the most interesting research and advocacy around how we consume the internet and how we consume information digitally. She's also the director of the Lab Lab, which is an interdisciplinary research lab focused on the role of forensic science and technology in the legal system. So basically, like, how and what do we believe things when it comes to criminal trials? And she's also the founder of True Wheel Research and Research Consulting, a firm based, a firm focused on research for creative projects. So basically, like, and I'm again, I mean, this with all love in my heart and all joy in my heart, like, Dr. Wood, I can't even get over it. My friends are doctors. Dr. Wood has made a career out of thinking really critically about what we consider evidence and how we archive evidence. And she found her way into library science by way of her interest in ufology, which is the study of UFOs. And um, more broadly than that, her interest in how people like support the beliefs and experiences they have with evidence. And her dissertation was about classified information. And uh, that is also super interesting. We talk a little bit about that. And this, just in general, she's one of the most interesting thinkers I know who um, I always come to her with my questions about the way I am receiving and processing information, especially via the internet. So today, um, I call her up and ask her about how we can understand the people in our lives who are not operating with the same set of facts we are, which is to say, like, maybe the more vaccine hesitant or people who find themselves on, you know, corners of the internet where we might not find ourselves and believing different links and sources. I also talked to her about how we all can be more critical consumers of information. This makes me really happy. Um... I have to warn you that uh, not only is Stacy a friend of mine, we have been told that we sound a lot alike, even though I can't hear it because who can objectively assess their own voice. So I apologize for any confusion. Rest assured, she will be the one explaining theories about the JFK assassination and UFOs and saying all the smart stuff about the internet. And I will be laughing and nodding along. So here I am with Dr. Stacy Wood. Can I call you Dr. Stacy Wood? Oh, absolutely. I demand it, in fact. Oh. <laughs> Dr. Wood, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm truly thrilled. Truly thrilled. It never gets old to call your friends doctor. Yes, I, it never gets old to get mail addressed to Dr. Oh. Wood. It's uh, It feels feels like because the mail is slightly more private, I can like luxuriate in mm. it a little bit more. <laughs> really lap it up. Yeah, really lap it up. <laughs> um, it was all worth it to get to that mailbox. <laughs> oh, God, just that little line of affirmation. Mm-hmm. 
all the years of strife. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's talk about this kind of theme or idea that underpins much of your research all of your research and work? Yeah, pretty much. I think so. I think, I mean, yes. <laughs> which is which is evidence. Yes. The, the idea that like, um, here is what we take as proof for something. This is what it means to, um, I don't know, to feel secure in your belief about something. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a really expansive concept, which <laughs> I like. But I also, I think, um, I sort of first started thinking about my work in that way because I was trained as an archivist. And in, mm. archi- in archives, we talk about evidence in a really specific way that is about kind of the warrant for how things are put together and how they're understood and how they maintain integrity across systems. So, huh. you know, how do you know that this birth certificate's a real birth certificate, right? You So the evidence is a seal or whatever. Yeah, right? exactly. Right? Yes. Yeah. But... You know, when I started to think about my dissertation work, it was about classified information policy. And uh, I got back to what I think of as my roots <laughs> as someone who uh, grew up in Nevada and sort of raised myself on Coast to Coast AM and the X-Files. And so, you know... Wait, what is Coast to Coast AM? Coast to Coast is... Um, a, a very, very long-running sort of paranormal call-in show that used to run in the middle of the night. and um, On AM radio? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And then, on, and then, of course, on the internet. I used to listen to it religiously, and people would call in and sort of dissect experiences they'd had, either, you know, mm. I mean, everything from cryptozoology to UFOs to <laughs> just strange things that had happened in their lives. And, uh, and so I grew up very much thinking about those things and sort of steeped in the reality of Nevada, which is a very open-minded place in terms of thinking about, uh, Mm. uh, you know, phenomena at large, (laughs) I would say. But it's also, I think, where we store a lot of the nation's nuclear waste, right? So where we think about hiding things, keeping things secret. So anyway, that's all a long way to say thinking about evidence becomes a different thing when you're thinking about uh, different contexts, different categories. So I started thinking about ufology and how ufology... Ufology is the study of UFOs. Yes, yes, indeed it is. <laughs> yes. Um, some people say ufology, but don't listen to them. We don't call it an UFO. We don't... See, there you go. Thank you. <laughs> so I started to think about, like, how are people evaluating classified documents, declassified documents, images that have circulated. How do people form community around those things and understand them together? And uh, when I was researching classified information policy, I was also sort of parallel uh, looking at the way that ufologists have created an alternative research infrastructure. So because they couldn't go do their research in traditional institutions, Mm -hmm. they started circulating their own academic journals and their own systems of peer review and their own systems of authentication. And I find that really fascinating as as a sort of mode to be in where you are rejecting kind of um, dominant institutional thinking and methodologies, but you're also imitating them just sort of adjacent to. Um, So... uh, that that work was sort of all going on at the same time. And I've also done work in thinking about legal concepts of evidence and how 
those concepts kind of push against uh, changing ideas around expertise and mm. narrative. Hmm. So like the thing that I think about, I mean, obviously we are all steeped right now in vaccine hesitancy, in narratives about what is and isn't safe to be doing out in the world. And I'm wondering about this term conspiracy or conspiracy theory, because there is so much, I don't know, there there seems to be an ever-changing set of norms around what we call it when people have their own set of evidence for things. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say it is this is a thorny issue in my life, um, because... <laughs> I grew up feeling very comfortable saying the phrase conspiracy theory. It meant something kind of specific and maybe something that right now in the moment in history that we're all experiencing and living in together seems a bit quaint. There's almost like an like JFK assassination. Yeah. And, and it, UFOs. And, and UFOs mm-hmm. and maybe, you know, Bigfoot, maybe, uh, you know, things that just almost we feel nostalgic about at this point because they felt like when we're thinking about it in co- in contrast to movements or you know communities now that have those same qualities uh, you know you don't see the level of anger or violence or single-mindedness that we see now mm. and i think there are lots of people who you know do a sort of better or worse job at diagnosing what that is sometimes people kind of lay that at the altar of technology alone like you know, people would be totally fine if we didn't have Facebook. And I think it's... There would be no QAnon. <laughs> yeah. There would be no vaccine hesitancy yeah, exactly. if Facebook didn't exist. Right? Yeah, exactly. And that is not true. It can't be true. And I think a lot of the ways uh, or the reasons that these sort of theories circulate and resonate so strongly is actually because they com- they fully scaffold onto pre-existing belief systems and also moral panics that we've been having cyclically for, you know, the last hundred years. So it's, you know, I think um, if you look at things like QAnon, you know, you see satanic panic in there. You see this sort of union of like Christian theology and uh, circumspection about the elites and the government. Um, If you look at sort of 5G uh, conspiracy notions, right? You see a Which lot of cell towers are controlling our brains. Yes, yes, controlling our brains. Some of them. It it was. I mean, it, actually, this is an expansive zone, but I think um, <laughs> the paranoia around five G takes a lot of forms, and you know, you'll see claims about it causing COVID. You'll mm-hmm. see claims about it, um, you know, being a means of manipulation, mm-hmm. all kinds of things. But you do see a lot of the roots. Same language, same patterns that you see in sort of anti-vax movements that you see in wellness communities. So I think, you know, it is, I think that technology and social media platforms have a significant role to play. And I don't want to sound like I'm letting them dodge their responsibilities, which are many and mostly unfulfilled. But um, but it's not that simple. It's not like if we just turned the switch off tomorrow on Facebook, everyone would go back to um, you know, a depth of trust in institutions like that's Facebook didn't cause didn't set the stage for the mistrust in institutions that I feel um, lets these these ideas really run rampant and, and lock in with people, mm-hmm. you know, because you have to I think you really have to be angry mm-hmm. um, at, at a system to to blame it in this way or to not trust it in this way or to be so vehement in your disagreement with it 
Gosh, it's funny. I find myself having this emotional reaction where I'm like, but I do want to blame Facebook. No, I, well, listen, I, listen, I blame Facebook for a lot of things. Right. So we could have a whole separate talk about like how angry I am at Facebook and I am. Right. Um, and I think this, yeah, it's has a part to play, but it can't be the only thing. Right. But what it does do is provide scale and speed that we've never had before. Right. And so I think that that is part of it where you see like, it used to be, and again, this is, I think, why would we talk about conspiracy theory? It seems quaint. It used to be like, I have to go to this certain table at this swap meet, and I know I can get the videos about the truth the Xerox from this guy, pamphlets. right? The Xerox yeah. pamphlets, the zines, the copies of different ufology mm-hmm. journals, whatever, which are, by the way, incredible. <laughs> and it was a lot harder to access that information. And it certainly felt like, a closed or more closed community. Hmm. Um, And now I think what's really hard is how do we distinguish between something that is really deep and might be a threat and something that is, you know, for the lols or I, you know, I I like this meme, so I circulated it. I think those things are really difficult to distinguish now Mm -hmm. at scale. Mm -hmm. You know, I think you can do it in a sophisticated way in a small sense, but in a large sense, we're just not there. And I think part of the challenge is that, you know, research in these areas are also is really complicated. Mm -hmm. And this is another reason, you know, we need to think about how we refer to people and, and how we think about it. Because, Often there are sort of more or less legitimate concerns, maybe buried somewhere. Sometimes not at all. <laughs> so, but but if you want to understand it, you know you need to talk to people, and they're absolutely not going to talk to you if you intro by calling somebody a conspiracy theorist, right? Because there's an immediate sort of value judgment in that, mm-hmm. even though in a literal sense it is exactly a theory well, about it is a conspiracy. exactly a theory about a conspiracy right right but you know because of how it's sort of circulated colloquially or in media i think there's a there's a shame around that mm-hmm. um and there's also a real desire to prove that their engagement with it and their research is real and substantive and rigorous yeah and i think the reason i had that reaction about facebook is because when i think about my own difficulties in deciding what to believe or deciding what's bullshit or deciding like what is actually an effective answer to a big thorny problem. I feel, um, I just, I feel like it's a lot harder to take a pause and sift and figure out who to trust due to the sheer info overload of being on the internet. Like I have been off Instagram for a month and I'm just like, oh, it's not that I feel like I have more clarity on complex issues or like I know exactly who to believe now, but it's not a kind of like live stressor in the way it is where I see a slideshow and I'm like, is the slideshow right? How was the slideshow built? Who built the slideshow? What are they citing? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, you're probably asking more of those questions than the average bear. I, you know, when you see, when you see a graphic or because you already know to ask those questions. And I Mm -hmm. think, um, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me is sort of the ever-evolving, adapting aesthetic of evidence, too, right? It's like, what do, how do we, when we look at something, how do we sort of apprehend whether or not it's legitimate? And I think it's harder and harder to do because people understand, you know, I think the Internet Archive is a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I encourage everyone to spend time there. Um, How do you spend time there? Well, I mean, I just I just like futz around. I mean, because I look for old, uh, 
because I look for old UFO <laughs> sites, um, you know, I, I do spend a fair amount there. But I've also, um, this is a bit of a tangent, but sometimes when I was teaching kind of intro to tech and values or tech and ethics courses, um, I would ask students to go answer complex questions using Yahoo ontologies. So before natural language search, before mm-hmm. Google's natural language search, we all, you remember the good old days, we all had to go through faceted categories. And so, you know, if you wanted to find out like what the score to a historic basketball game was, you had to start at sports, basketball, the team, right? You, you went down and down and down and you got more specific as you went, which is a very, very different way of asking a question or finding information than typing in a sentence Mm -hmm. and how that structures what you get back, how that structures what you even think is possible to ask is really fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, natural language search and the sort of advertising incentives that have become endemic to that uh, certainly are part of this as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the thing too. It's like, I think Facebook is really visible and it should be because it's, it's, it is, and it's where a lot of this is happening. But, you know, I think of uh, my colleague's book, um, Sophia Noble's Algorithms of Oppression, where she talks about um, how natural language search can also lead to a lot mm. of this, where, you know, Dylan Roof ser- does a Google search for Martin Luther King, and he ends up on a white supremacist website mm. that is trying to debunk the legacy of Martin Luther King, right? So that's the first, his first entry point into a question of, you know, who is this person, Boop, you know, Google has that as their your top result because the it was easy to manipulate. Um, it's less easy, easy to manipulate now, but it's hmm. still there. You know, it is it is hard. Well, and that's an interesting question too because um, I I find myself increasingly casually talking about the algorithm. Yes, yeah, <laughs> it lives, it lives exactly <laughs> like um, and. And, you know, and I think another thing that's not very transparent to people is like, you know, okay, is Google showing Dylan Roof this white supremacist website because Dylan Roof has already been on a lot of white supremacist websites? Is it showing because he that, that wipes white wipe? <laughs> is it showing him the link because that white supremacist website paid to be high up in the results? Like it yeah. is like a really it can be also hard to figure out. Speaking of evidence, like how did something end up here in front of me? Yeah, it is really complicated. And I think it's a hard question to answer for many reasons. And I mean, I will I will say this, right? My my technical prowess and know-how is not up to the task of understanding the complexities of Google's algorithms, right? But Who's also, <laughs> yeah, I mean, somebody out there, definitely there are people, uh, right. but I, but, you know, but, but the, maybe the more important problem for us is that all of these systems are proprietary. So there's also that aspect of it that a lot of what I would call black box systems, so things that you can't see inside, you can't mm-hmm. tell how something's making its decisions or working. So I think if you can't see how it's being done, right, there's this air of mystery around it. And I think that contributes partially to mm-hmm. why we don't actually question it very much because it seems it seems to make sense to us Right. It seems to fit into what we're doing. And I, I even had a conversation with a friend, uh, a mutual friend who will go unnamed um, uh, last week about, um, you know, whether or not our phones are listening to us. Mm-hmm. This is always this is a sort it's of perennial. perpetual. Thing, right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, the, you know, the answer is no. And um, and the actual answer might be scarier. Right. Because it's actually that data brokers and 
GPS is so good that it can tell that you and I are sitting next to each other and that you and I both went to these different stores today Mm -hmm. and then reinforces things that we sort of already might be interested in. And she was sort of pressing me on it. And she was like, but I didn't even, I didn't Google it and I didn't do anything. I, I just talked about it. And I was like, oh, and I see this is the thing. It's you, you're, you're shown something a hundred times, but you only see it on the 99th time. And then the hundredth time you see it, you think, oh, that's spooky, mm-hmm. right? Because now you've called attention to it. And it, you know, it's, it's like the phenomenon when you learn a new word or you see a red There's Corvette. A name for that. I was just trying I know, to remember it. I can't yeah. either. I, I was, you know, but, but we know it's a thing, right? It's we know thing. it's a thing. Um, you know, whatever that phenomena is, I'm sure you, dear listener, are, are screaming at us right now. We'll get what it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you, you win know, if you're, yeah, you yeah. win, you win. <laughs> um, researchers, you know, the qualitative research arms of a lot of these tech companies are very good at figuring out how to incentivize moving through the pathways that are put in front of you and really good at reinforcing, really good at the nudge, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so I think things can feel magical or they can feel creepy or they can feel prescient. And But that's sort of part of what they're also selling to us is that our devices are smarter than we are Mm -hmm. and know what we want more than we do. The issue with that around, I mean, there's lots of issues, but I think one of the things about that that is frustrating or kind of debilitating in different ways is that the claim is that all of these things just reflect society and reflect rather the than reality rather than shape it mm-hmm. right and I think uh, and you'll see this I don't know if anybody else really enjoys taking an afternoon to watch six to seven hours of a congressional hearing with Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg but in case you don't <laughs> I'll tell you that's why you're here <laughs> that's why I'm here but uh, and, uh <laughs> They're always really fascinating because you see these questions explicitly getting asked and laying at the at the feet of, again, the algorithm with a capital T and a capital mm-hmm. A. And they're always really careful to limit or to make smaller the claims, right, in, in that context. And then of how in, much the algorithm how knows much or the algorithm the can do, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But then in every other context, that's the selling point. And it's this really interesting back and forth where it's like, oh no, we couldn't possibly we don't we're not powerful enough to do that. That's ridiculous. This is just a reflection of reality. And then it's like you look at the sales pitches, you look at advertising, you look at how it's being offered to you, and it's the exact opposite, right? Mm-hmm. It is you need this. You can't possibly know how well you slept last night, unless this watch tells you. Or your bed or tells you. Or your bed tells a, you or yeah. whatever, you know. It is undoubt- undoubtedly true that there's an economic incentive for keeping people on, you know, on those platforms. Mm-hmm. And so anything you can do to keep people interested and to keep people going. And there have been so many well-documented cases, especially with YouTube, mm-hmm. um, talking about radicalization and how people get pushed further because you know you and trust me when I was doing my dissertation research I I wish I had kept better records of this of of those processes because my YouTube algorithm was absolutely wonderful bonkers (laughs) because it was I had watched so many videos about what I was uh, you know researching at the time that it didn't even take I didn't even have to search for anything for, you know, Hillary Clinton as a reptilian to be served to me within two, mm-hmm. two degrees. Um, and it just keeps pushing you down that hole because that's the thing that keeps you there. Mm. So I think, you know, they've been really, I think the, the, the sort of big tech CEOs have been really on speaking tours for the last 
five years saying, no, 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 no. We have no incentive. That is not what we do. We do not radicalize people. We have no incentive to do that. We Our incentives would be to clean it up and have it be a nice place. And, um, you know, I think I think it's a both and. I think that's both true and untrue. So, mm-hmm. you know. Well, their incentive is to keep people using the platform as long as possible. And how do you do that? You give yeah. people more of what they already want. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I want to go back to this idea of evidence and like think about it more in terms of things that might be socially or politically closer to home for you and me. Like we are not in a sort of target demo of reptilian Hillary or like, or even, or even I would say like some of the more conspiracy minded narratives about the vaccine. Like, you know, you and I are kind of firmly in a social group and of a political persuasion where we're not getting served that. What about stuff that is closer to home? You know, like things that feel of this same ilk, but are more directed to you. Hmm. Do you have an, do you have an example in mind from your I'm just going to say one word. Yeah. Adaptogen. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was it. So, apologies, dear listener, for that outburst. But I, you know, I think, um, yeah, I, well, my first instinct actually was to be like, well, what I have noticed is that it's, um, I've had a lot more conversations with people in my life that were vaccine hesitant than mm-hmm. I would have predicted. Mm-hmm. Um, and that tends to come from a sort of wellness supplement direction rather than, uh, you know, a radical mistrust of the government. Mm-hmm. So I think there is so much, so much disinformation about wellness trends. And the hard part is, right, is holding these two truths in your brain at the same time that we know that the history of science writ large and this history of medical science is fraught with all of these sort of horrible racial traumas and mm-hmm. uh and gender-based traumas uh, that persist right that we still see the results of and we also really need medical science <laughs> at the same time right and we want to be advocates for the best version of that that we can possibly have mm-hmm. i know i mean and this is always i think the difficult thing about Um, information quality or evidence is that we sort of both know that it is contextual, it's highly contingent, um, it's going to mean different things to different people, and we can have trouble with our institutions, and yet, you know, there are also facts on the ground, so... How to navigate those waters is just never simple. Ever, yeah, ever simple. It's a real like, who do you trust and why? Yeah. The war cry of the conspiracy theorists is do your own research, right? Oh, do yeah. the research. And not only the conspiracy theorists, like the the like influencer who's yeah. peddling stuff oh, too. Yes, it's like definitely. do your own research is a real rallying cry for yes. lots of people. Yeah. <laughs> There's never a let's talk about how to do research, mm-hmm. right? It's just do do it. Do it. Go do it. And what that usually means is what I just did which is just type Web one MD. or two words into <laughs> Google and see what happens, right? Nobody, and it's, I mean, I don't remember the exact statistics anymore, but about how many people go past the first page of Google, it's very, very few. Mm-hmm. And this is where we get back into thinking about what is Google optimized to do? What is it optimized to give us back? You know, I think that sort of do your own research call is a compelling one because, you know, we all want to think that we are maybe more informed or smarter and we all want to think that we are responsible. And I think that is mm. the really difficult part where we're making good choices. We're making good choices. We and we are the author of those choices, mm-hmm. right? And and it is a very very 
strong thing to not want to feel manipulated or not want to feel duped by anything. Of course. And, but I also think that, you know, when you see, like, I don't know if you saw this recent, recent piece about uh, the school boards getting terrifying, Mm -hmm. school board meetings getting terrifying. You don't get that level of, of fear and fervor without it being built on an, on, on top of something else. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think some of that is, historical trauma and neglect some of it is shifting dynamics and some of its entitlement Mm -hmm. some of it is you know building on top of evangelical christian beliefs Mm -hmm. right so i these these things all kind of swim together in the same waters those waters are america yes exactly (laughs) they swim together in the waters (laughs) of america (laughs) oh my god this is an amazing place to take an ad break I also, okay, so I want to ask where archives fit into this. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation about how looking at how people are archiving and creating their own, you know, system of evidence for UFO and paranormal stuff was like one of the ways into your academic work. Mm-hmm. Where where do archives fit? Yeah, I, well, I, so it's interesting. I think archives are sort of, the bread and butter of it all, because that is where you show up to do research on primary texts. And the one of the things I talked about in my dissertation that will show up in something someday is um, there's a, a really amazing website that is run by a father and son duo whose last name also happens to be Wood. Um, I thought you were going to say whose last name also happens to be Duo. No. <laughs> I wish. Um, but, you know, their their entire site and a lot of their work is devoted to analyzing and authenticating a specific group of documents mm. that, that are called the Majestic 12 documents. And anybody who is anybody, I mean, anybody who is listening, if you know what those are, you know, like this is a rabbit hole we could go down forever. But I will give the the sort of TLDR. I love thinking about the the CYG <laughs> listener who's like CYG meets Majestic 12 documents. Yeah, genuinely, if you're in that Venn you're diagram, having a, just you're having a great me, day. Just email yeah. me immediately. Yeah. Go um, on, explain, <laughs> explain it to the rest of us. Um, but um, so the Majestic 12 documents are a set of of documents that were sort of secretly handed over to a UFO researcher in the 80s. They were slipped through a mail slot in a manila folder. And it was photos, undeveloped film. Mm -hmm. And then when they developed them, it was photos of documents that looked to have classification markings on them that would indicate they came from, right, different government agencies. Okay. So in these documents... Exactly right. This is mm. so. This is a, this is the full circle yes, view, right? I mean, Which I'm is, here for it. <laughs> um, so, in these documents, the gist is that uh, there was a secret group of UFO crash retrieval experts, right? And this included such luminaries as Vannevar Bush, who was the dra- the. Um, for information studies nerds, he's a he's a big hero. Uh, in it, well, not really, but I mean, you know, he's a big figure, <laughs> a big name, a big the, name. he's a big name in information studies. But the Majestic Twelve team is made up of high profile government officials from the military and um, and civilian agencies, 
And the claim was that, they, you know, we have the secret team and they are in charge of going to clean up crash retrieval, crash retrieval sites and to keep everything secret and under wraps. And this plugs into all of the other sort of big, you know, Project Blue Book things and a lot of big sort of uh, moments in ufology. Okay. Moments in UFO history. This is why these documents are so majestic. This is why they are so <laughs> majestic. <laughs> um, so... Uh, anyway, these documents became this really interesting sort of catalyzing force for ufology research for the next like 30 years. People have been analyzing them. There was a cash prize for a while. Stanton Friedman, who's one of the sort of biggest names in ufology research. Who, Are they all named Wood or Friedman? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Let's, let's test this theory. But um, uh, anyway, he he spent a lot of time and staked a lot of his professional you know, credibility on these documents. Um, they are pretty much known to be a hoax. There was a big public outing of the hoax at a ufology conference. It's juicy, juicy gossip for, for anybody who's into it. Like that is a really amazing period and I'm happy to send you resources. Um, <laughs> and we'll talk about it, <laughs> but, uh, but long story long, um, the, the woods have this whole website that is dedicated to the analysis and authentication of these documents in using what they know about how the archives work. Mm. So they use... The archives meaning like government archives. Yeah, the National Archives and yes. Records Administration. So they, you know, have spent an enormous amount of time going and looking through the records and saying, you know, okay, this is where this missing file should go. Mm -hmm. This is how you can tell, you know, here's this date, here's this typewriter quirk, right? Here are these names and co-locating where people would be at certain moments in history. So, you know, when we think about... Um, archives as evidence, right? They retain the qualities of evidence, not just because they're in a box at the National Archives and Records Administration, but because they have the right markings, they might have a formal quality, right? Something might have a stain and you know where that came from. There are all of these other ways that we preserve that. And part of that is through context. And this is where government records get really hairy because a lot of that context you can't see. Hmm. So normally, you know, a document in relation to other documents, it only is evidential in relation to that whole group of documents. It has the same letterhead as exactly. all these others. Or, or, or you just understand, you know, where it fits in the mm -hmm. sort of um, institutional record context. So, um, you know, going through and seeing, like, basically I just traced, you know, how people were talking about and thinking about the Majestic 12 documents and all of the different ways that they were trying to authenticate them as supposed documents that had been classified and stolen mm. right so they were supposed to be leaked uh, so you know anyway they're 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 definitely fake i just want to say that yep. officially <laughs> they're definitely fake but i but they're still an interesting thought experiment because not everybody in that community has given up on it even mm -hmm. though someone essentially came forward and said yeah i was i me. am an agent of disinformation like this wow. was a psyop and <laughs> and uh, i mean at an annual UFO gathering. Like stood up in the middle of the room. Yeah, I mean, during his talk, during wow. his talk. And I mean, pandemonium, absolute pandemonium. So it's, um, it is a contentious thing. Okay, so one of the ways that I found my way into this was I went to a great summer school gathering in Paris. All Everybody there was there because their research was about, to some extent, controversy mapping or conspiracy mapping. So trying to study how ideas circulate and get, out of control. And it was interesting because I would say that the group was sort of split in half in that half of the people were almost exclusively interested in how 
um, how climate science became mm. a climate debate, mm-hmm. which is fascinating. And there's a great book that I will recommend every human being on earth read by Naomi Oreskes that is about um, how, exactly this, like how how climate science became climate denial and all of the money and research infrastructure behind it. What's the book called? Merchants of Doubt. Oh, I've heard of this it's book. It's great. Yeah. It is genuinely great. Um, but, you know, so half the group was sort of devoted to that. And then half of the group was really thinking about um, conspiracy and how that how that moves. And there was a scholar there who talked about um, different artifacts found at the Roswell crash site mm-hmm. and how even people who were there on the same day disagreed about what the ruins looked like, what the what the sort of crash materials looked like. There was a little boy who found a piece that had like hieroglyphic markings on it, right? And it became this the centerpiece of mm-hmm. like, how do we figure out what this says? And of course, whenever you start talking about crash sites, that's when you get into the real juicy conspiracy stuff because that's all hidden, right? Mm. If you if you say it's all been cleared away, it's and all been somewhere. cleared away and mm-hmm. hidden somewhere, and you know, probably Area Fifty One is always the uh, assumption. Um, but you know, if if we have it, it's in a warehouse somewhere, and we're studying it, and that's the conspiracy. The conspiracy, mm. the conspiracy is the cover up, right? right? The conspiracy is not. It the is aliens. the archive. It is. That is exactly <laughs> it. I want to ask about what you're working on right now. Yeah. Um, so many things. Um, I have a, a new project that I'm trying, I'm really just at the very beginning stages of, but where I'm thinking about the role of technology in courtroom presentation um, mm. and expert testimony specifically. And one of the things that led me there was I started looking at these 3D laser scanners that have been used for crime scene reconstruction. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, essentially set them up. They take thousands and thousands and thousands of pictures of the site and then they turn that into data, and then they turn the data back into a reenactment of that space, and now, then play it for juries. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so the it's mostly used so far for traffic accidents, but it was used in the Jason DeFries trial, who was the uh, person who murdered Laquan McDonald, mm-hmm. and also in the grand jury uh, testimony for the Tamir Rice case wow. that didn't ever go. So it's it so it's like it's mostly used in traffic accidents but then however these high profile right it's used in high profile police murders. police murders not only are are we sort of producing a reenactment based on data points fine whatever but what they also have done is layered in different branches of forensic science into the software that is also automated so you have blood spatter analysis you have shot trajectory analysis you have all of these things that are baked into that software Every uh, everything that's like a plot point on CSI. Everything that's a plot point on CSI, <laughs> and and I think the the you know there are many problems with that. But I for me the headline problem is that then you do not have a blood spatter analyst testifying. Mm-hmm. You do not have a shot trajectory analyst testifying. What you have is whoever they decide to bring in to prove that the software is legitimate. Oh wow! And then just the video. And then just the video. So and that's what happened in the in the Laquan McDonald mm-hmm. um, case because. They called in an animator, this guy who used to work for Pixar, as the expert testimony. And there were a bunch of differences. There were changes in what everyone was wearing. There were changes in, like, body positions. Like, there were many changes that had been made in it. And, you know, if you look, you can read through this public testimony. You can read through it if you want. But it's, um, you know, the response is something something like, uh, oh, we didn't think it mattered if he was wearing a a hoodie or a shirt. Mm. And it just feels... I mean, 
it's beyond disingenuous. It, it mm-hmm. is just abs- it's just offensively naive if if we want to give all the credit in the world, right? If we give all the credit in the world to this person, it's it's offensively naive. But I don't believe, you know, I don't believe that that person is totally that naive. So I, um, but anybody They are making deliberate choices about how to re- pre- present this reenacted data. Not only that, but every single high profile, low pri- profile, mid profile police murder has, has to do with the defense implicitly and explicitly is that the cop was afraid, mm-hmm. right? And some of the things that are brought up and why was this person afraid mm-hmm. is how did that person look? What was they? What were they wearing? Right. How right. were they standing? What was how were they standing? Yeah. Did it look like they could hide something in it? Yeah. Right. So when you start to say things like, oh, it doesn't matter if they're wearing a hoodie or a T-shirt. It's patently yeah. mm-hmm. untrue yes. because that is the same type of thing that would be brought up in evidence to to say that justifies me being scared. Yeah. So it doesn't, you can't have it both ways. Evidence. Evidence. <sighs> Stacy, thank you for being, sorry, <clears throat> Dr. Wood, thank oh, you for yeah, being please, on the show. Please. A joy never use you. my first name. <laughs> never, ever. Um, <laughs> thank you for so much for having me. It was a joy. Mm. <laughs> you can find more about Dr. Wood's work on her website, Stacy. that's S-T-A-C-Y, ewood.com. Uh, and also hire her for independent research or uh, look into what UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry is all about. Nerd out. Back to school. We love it. You can find us many places on the internet. Callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your faves. Subscribe, rate, review. You know the drill. Call us back. Leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf. And you can buy our book, Big Friendship, anywhere you buy books, but we are really partial to independent bookstores. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kenesha Sneed. Our producer is Jordan Bailey. This podcast is executive produced by Gina Delvac.